0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. 2022 will mark the centenary of the notorious March on Rome, a key moment in Mussolini's rise to power in Italy. With that in mind... Today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode is all about the history of fascism. Our production editor, Spencer Mizen, sat down with Richard Bosworth, Senior Research Fellow in History at the University of Oxford. As always with this series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via our social media channels.
2: So Richard, we're going to talk today about the history of fascism. Now, I wonder if we could start with a question submitted by Rosie Victoria99 on social media. And that question is: what are the origins of fascism? When and where did it first appear?
3: Well, it's a good question to be asking at the moment, because in October next year, the 28th of October, 2022, is in fact the centenary of what the regime, the, the Mussolini's regime in Italy called the March on Rome. And, um, and their fascist revolution. So the first answer to the question is that the meaning of fascism, the nature of fascism, emerged from certain political events in Italy between the end of the First World War and Mussolini being nominated prime minister by the king of Italy, and the word then spread into other languages from Italian. I guess it spread and it spread and it spread, and so today, normally, when someone says, you're a fascist, they're not being nice to you unless you happen to belong to one of the extreme groups that exist in most societies. Mussolini, I'm afraid, is a, is a less serious figure, except perhaps in contemporary Italy.
2: So can you talk us through what happened a century ago in Italy and talk, talk us through like the evolution of fascism in that country?
3: Well, um, again, the the thing probably didn't really exist on the twenty eighth of October, nineteen twenty two. Italy had had Italy was a country which had been only united in the middle of the nineteenth century, around about eighteen sixty. It was therefore a new nation. The actual territorial extent of that nation had never existed before. But like all nations, it its uh, leadership groups like to claim a long history. And the word fascism, the word fascio. which which is the the word from which the ideology uh, fascism comes, turned up in all sorts of places in that society, really normally just meaning some sort of group. And it was really only the First World War that started to give the meanings that we now would ascribe to to fascism. Um, Italy had entered the First World War late, just as it did in the Second World War in May 1915, um, Chris Clarke became famous by um, talking about um, how Europe slept into the First World War in um, July, August 1914. Italy didn't sleepwalk into the First World War, it entered deliberately, um, while it was still allegedly a liberal state of its own peculiar kind. And it then had a very difficult war. It spent more on waging the war than all the Italian governments had spent since 1860 up to 1913. It had heavy casualties, so it had far more casualties in the First World War than it actually would do in the more notorious um, Second World War when Italy was fighting on the German side. And so it emerged from the war in a a battered state um, with lots of social division. Um, Like other European societies, the liberal elite were trying to work out what on earth to do with socialists who um, had not supported Italy's war and tried to, in a rather feeble way, to remain neutral during it. Um, And in 1919, there were lots of strikes. Um, The Socialist Party in elections in November became, um, well, either, I mean, there wasn't really a Liberal Party, but if you forget about, Liberals became the largest party in the Italian Chamber of Deputies, and so on and so forth. So there was a sense in which Italy looked as though it might be about to go the way that Russia had already gone. And there's a, a socialist song from the period all about how we will do what they're already doing in Russia and uh, whoever doesn't work won't eat um, is, is, are, the words of the, are the first words of the song. Mussolini had been a socialist before 1914. He was a very bright young man, editor of the main National Socialist newspaper when he was still only 29, a very successful editor, quadrupling the uh, the sales of the paper up to 1914. But then when the First World War started, He, like many other Italian intellectuals, decided that really Italy couldn't be a great power and stay out of the First World War. And in his mind, it couldn't have a revolution, which he still wanted, without going into the First World War. So he served for a while at the front, was wounded in a practice bit behind the front, and then by 1917 was back making a career as a journalist, which was an important position in the Italian political system.
2: So can you talk us through the march on Rome? Why is is that such a significant event in the history of fascism?
3: Well, it's significant. I really, I suppose, should say that in 1919, in March 1919, the word fascio or fascist um, started to have a new meaning because in March that year, Mussolini and a number of other ex-soldiers and um, people who were sort of radicaloids set up a movement called the Fasci di Combattimento. It was um, Republican, it was um, very anti-clerical, hostile to the Vatican, it wanted severe taxation of war profiteers and a whole lot of radical-looking measures. It wanted a revolution which looked as though it might almost be Marxist, except for the fact that the Italian socialist movement had opposed the war, so it did want Italy to have gains from the war. Between 1919 and 1922, Mussolini in a, a very ably, really, rode, rode a political wave where the fascist movement gave up being republican and went monarchist. They gave up being rude to the Pope and became polite to the Vatican and and, um, accepted that Catholicism were Italian's national religion. They stopped wanting to have punitive measures against the rich sections of society. And basically they developed a double sort of face, one of which was um, in the areas where Italy did make territorial gains in the First World War, so in Chieste, And in the Trentino, there were peoples who didn't speak Italian who weren't, um, by some definition, members of Italian nationality, and therefore there was a strong movement in those regions to to repress those people, to impose Italian nationality on them. And then much more significantly, um, it was an anti-socialist, anti-Marxist, anti-peasant unionist movement, especially in northern Italy where, as I said before, the peasants um, had made very considerable gains, there so were lots of strikes, et cetera, in what was called the Biennio Rosso from the, the red two years from 1919 to 1920. By 1921, the fascist movement was with, with um, financial support from the rich people in society, from landowners, from industrialists, et cetera, and with tacit support from the liberal Italian state and were engaged in punitive raids on socialist party members, on unions, and that sort of thing. There was some killing. There was certainly, um, uh, via enthusiasm for the violent suppression of these people who were allegedly undermining the Italian state, the Italian nation, and the Italian economy. Um, Mussolini, however, um, went on being a journalist, went on being an able journalist based in Milan. And in October 1922, everything sort of came to a head. Um, The the squads, as they were called, the fascist squads, were marching on Rome, marching towards Rome on the night of the 27th of October 1922. But Mussolini was up in Milan by the telephone negotiating with ex-prime ministers and that sort of thing. And um, for a brief moment, it looked as though the liberal regime, the King Victor Emmanuel III, an existing prime minister, and a rather non-entity of a person called um, Luigi Facta, were going to repress um, Mussolini. The, the, the squads were going to repress these violent people, which they probably could have done. But and then they pulled out of doing that, fearing civil war or fearing perhaps there'd be some other um, candidate for the position as king. And by the afternoon of the 28th of October, fascists were beginning to enter Rome. When the regime became a regime, became a dictatorship for a generation... They claimed that this was all a totally organised revolution and um, and no one died and blah, blah. All this stuff is, is, is not true. In fact, Mussolini arrived by express train from Milan on the night of the 30th of October and on the 31st, King Victor Emmanuel III made him prime minister. There were 35 fascist members of the Chamber of Deputies, not a large number, but in the way that the Italian constitution had worked. There weren't, the Liberals didn't have a mass political party and the Prime Minister was always the leader of a group normally with a newspaper supporting him. The fascists did have that and so, in a sense, the March on Rome was a double sort of face thing, one with violence in the countryside, perhaps slightly fake, and on the other side with crafty political negotiation led by Benito Mussolini.
2: Now... James Dallin, also on social media, would like to know where does the word fascist come from? Now, would I be right in saying it's got its origins in ancient Roman history?
3: Well, there is a there is a Roman connection. Italy was the sort of country which where it was hard to avoid Roman and uh, Roman connections. I imagine that your your listeners have um quite a few of them have been to Rome and know the Victor Emmanuel Monument, the huge monument, which stands in the center of Rome, of old Rome, and looks out on the balcony of the Palazzo Venezia, from which Mussolini gave many memorable speeches. But the Victor Emmanuel Monument is much larger than the balcony. And it was opened, in fact, in 1911. It stands right next to um, the, 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 the Forum and the Capitol from um, the days of Julius Caesar. So the idea of being A new Rome, a third Rome, as the phrase was, was well and truly around in Italy before 1914. And the fascists would certainly take it up and use it over and over again to explain what they were doing, even though it actually bore little resemblance to what they may have really been doing. One of the matters that I always rather like to point out is that there's a lot of chat when um, fascist foreign policy becomes aggressive and there are a number of wars in the 1930s the most significant of these is really, the, and, and, and the most bloody, is the uh, attack on Ethiopia in October 1935. Um, Ethiopia, of course, was one part of the world where actually legionaries hadn't gone. And so if this was meant to be Mussolini's Roman Empire, somehow it wasn't really Mussolini's Roman Empire. It was an empire that perhaps had more connections with the British or French or other European countries' empires in Africa.
2: Did Mussolini view fascism as something uniquely Italian or did he envisage it being exported around the world?
3: Well, this is a very good question because it really does highlight, I think, um, one of the matters that I am very much inclined to emphasize about fascism and that I think any sensible commentator would. You can do a sort of intellectual history tracing of the word fascism and uh, of um, movements that are perhaps similar in intellectual circles in other countries before 1914. But um, in the case of Italy, what you find with Mussolini, that when when the movement is starting in 1919 as very radical looking and then by 1922 seems to have become largely conservative, um, that's um, also part of a process where Mussolini tends to deny that fascism has an ideology. Only silly bickering people like Marxists, he's inclined to say, have ideologies and get ruled by them. I'm a practical man. I um, mean, he, he, there was a sort of statement to get in the quotes of the week, as it were, in just before the March on Rome, where Mussolini was asked what fascist policy was, and he said, we want to govern Italy. And, and that was the end of it all. Um, and it's only really as time wears on that the regime starts to try to define fascism in the 1920s, they're very ambiguous about whether this is a purely Italian matter. And then in the 1930s, they become much more convinced that fascism is a global um, movement. The word that they start using is actually quite interesting because they talk about universal fascism. Now, the organisation that, in a sense, had a prior claim on universal was, of course, the Catholic Church. And Mussolini's dictator in Rome always had to share History and fame and celebrity and all that sort of stuff with the Pope, and with the Vatican, and it was the Church, therefore, that in a sense the, the fascists were trying somehow to, to, to imitate, to be as grand as and all phrases like that, I suppose.
2: And so, what did the Catholic Church make of Mussolini and his fascist regime?
3: Well, that, that too is an interesting question. There, there is one celebrated um, agreement, a concordat between them, signed on the 11th of February 1929, the so-called Lateran Pax. Um, in fact, liberal Italy and the Church had been engaged in Cold War ever since Italy was created because, of course, um, it was only in 1870 that the, uh, the new Italian state invaded Rome and took it from the Vatican, they launched through the Porta Pia in Rome and and seized it against the Vatican's army. And uh, the result of that was um, sort of mutual non-recognition, if you can see what I mean, although again, with a lot of practical, in fact, collaboration. Um, But in the 1920s, Mussolini gradually um, tried to um, deepen relations with the church, and in 1929, there was an agreement. Most commentators would say that the Vatican probably got the best of the agreement. They got large financial compensation, for example. And by the middle of the 1930s, they seem to have been moving that financial compensation off into the American stock market, fearing that things that... So they weren't entirely stupid um, in uh, in confronting them by the time the Italians were invading Ethiopia and so on. There's plenty of collaboration between church and state again Ethiopia from a church point of view is a place where the the majority of the population are Christian um, but they're Coptic Christian and therefore they're heretical and in fact there's only just been a book that's come out tracing the way in which the church um, backed up the the Italian brutality in Ethiopia where the number of people killed may I mean the 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 author of this book claims a high total of above 750,000 most Commentators would say 350 to 400,000, I think, dead. But when you're looking for the victims of the Italian fascist regime, it's actually in Africa. And one other matter that I might like to mention there is that there's a man in the Italian fascist story called Pietro Tacchi Venturi, who was a Jesuit priest older than Mussolini. Hardly anyone in, in the English speaking world has ever noticed him. But he was a major figure. He really was Mussolini's secret contact to the Vatican and the Vatican's secret contact to Mussolini. Relatively recently, the Italian archives have uh, made available for scholars to read um, a list of Mussolini's appointment books through the 1930s. And what's really striking about them is how often he and uh, Taki Venturi have a little chat. And sometimes it's Taki Venturi who wants the regime to be more Um, more extreme say on making sure that women don't go too far or something or other um, than, uh, than is Mussolini.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: It has, of course, been used very readily for Trump and his aspirations in the United States.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello.
2: This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Matthias Hunick has asked, what is the difference between fascism and national socialism, or are they the same thing? Now, in the eyes of many people, I guess fascism and Nazism are essentially one and the same. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see important distinctions between the
3: two? Well, I think, again, um, all sorts of important questions are being raised in that query because Italy does fight on the German side in the Second World War. Okay, it takes nine months to get into the war. It doesn't go until the 10th of June, 1940. That's pretty much what it had done in the First World War, but on the other side. And um, there, there are plenty of uh, matters which seem to unite um, the Italian regime and the German regime in the second half of the 1930s and then during the course of the, of the Second World War. Although there's also plenty of cases where they're not quite the same um nazism of course um is is um an absolutist um ideal um and hitler um believed um from his understanding of pseudoscience that his job in the world was to eliminate all the jews in the world and i guess all the bolsheviks in the world thus a, a death tally of more than six million jews and I mean, perhaps 27 million citizens of the Soviet Union died in the Second World War, although perhaps three or four million of them died courtesy of Joseph Stalin rather than courtesy of Adolf Hitler. Um, It's an extraordinary story of absolutism and of complete belief. Mussolini was much more of an ordinary politician in that regard. Italy, of course, had nothing like those casualties in the Second World War, some 450,000. I mean, much the same as Britain, in fact. Um, a relatively minor Second World War, contrary sometimes to British rhetoric about their glorious achievements. Then, um, but the, the 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 real battle was the, um, the Nazi anti-Semitism and Nazi um, anti-Bolshevism. The Italian regime talked anti-Bolshevik, but during the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, if you look at if you did a old-fashioned diplomatic history of Fascist Italy-Soviet Union relations through those years actually get on quite well, rather bizarrely. They sell arms to each other, for example, deep into the 1930s. And so I don't know quite what, you, you, what you're meant to make of that. Um, Anti-Semitism, the Italian regime in 1938 does bring in abhorrent anti-Semitic legislation. And after 1943, the um, the second bit of fascism, the Sala Republic, from September 1943 to the end in April 1945, does, join, does does collect Jews and send them off to the Germans in um, Auschwitz and places like that to, to die. And of course, Primo Levi has written the most wonderful book about his own experiences in that regard. But before that, um, there are examples of anti-Semitism in the Italian fascist, in Italian fascism's behaviour. But much more striking, as I said before, I think, is the number of um, a, a number of people from Africa whom the Italians kill, starting off in Libya, which had been a colony that the Italians had aggressively seized in 1911, 12, um, and then it, it needed a reimposition of a so-called Roman peace. Perhaps a hundred thousand Libyans died, perhaps an eighth of the population under fascist administration. And then in Ethiopia, the numbers really one can't be completely sure about them because there was no cunning bureaucracy, going away, checking off each death. But certainly something like three or four hundred thousand people die prematurely as a result of Italian imperialism in Ethiopia. So if one gives the Italian regime a, a body count in terms of premature deaths of about a million, half of them being soldiers lost in its aggressive wars and presumably some of the people these soldiers killed, the other half are people who are either Arabs or Berbers in Libya, or the various multiple peoples of the Ethiopian Empire.
2: How would you describe the relationship between Hitler and Mussolini?
3: Well, it's a very interesting relationship also, because very notoriously, um, Hitler had a bust of Mussolini in his special office in Munich. I must say that um, one shouldn't again get too over the top. Only in the last few days, I've read a slightly curious new biography of Salazar, the dictator of Portugal in the 1930s, a very careful little accountant, sort of economist person. And I learnt that Salazar had a portrait of Mussolini on his desk until the 10th of June, 1940. So that's a sign of the way in which deep into the 1930s, opinion was not quite sure if Nazism and fascism were the double act or whether Mussolini was someone who should be compared with Salazar or with Franco in Spain, or with Kemal talk in Turkey, or actually, and this is a curious one that may surprise you, with FDR in the United States. Deep into um, FDR's second term, authoritative Italians are still wondering whether Roosevelt, A, has more power than a dictator has in Rome, and B, is imposing policies of state welfare and so on that bear some from, from above, Um, State, with the state being emphasized, that bear considerable comparison with Italy. I must say, there's also a curious strain of Italian, young Italian fascists in 1935, 1936, who wonder whether Stalin's going fascist, um, because uh, he too may be wanting to defend the nation and also impose state welfare on the Russian population, on the Soviet population.
2: Now, Yugoslav Fabuki asks, in which countries other than Italy and Germany did fascism gain traction between the two world wars so I mean you mentioned uh, Franco just just then. Would you, I mean would you describe his as a fascist regime?
3: Well the problem is that um, is again with this word fascism. so if you read Italian commentaries, then authoritarian regimes as we as political scientists would probably want to define them. Like Kemal Ataturk in Turkey, say, like the regime in Austria until um, 1938, like Hungary, um, like the Baltic, many of the Baltic states, um, that they were somehow quite close to the Italian regime. Mussolini, every now and then is inclined to send advice to um, the, the the leaders of such places. There's a wonderful um, dispatch to Metaxas, the, the Greek military person who'd become authoritarian chief of Greece, I think, in 1936, but please don't quote me on the date, where where he says, well, all you need to be a real dictator is to have state welfare, to have a state-controlled education system and to have just one political party. And so it's quite a simple definition of fascism. He doesn't talk about race. He doesn't talk about going to war because, of course, those are the two features of Nazism that most people, when you want to say I don't like you, you're a fascist. You generally remember Auschwitz and you also assume that you're some sort of madman and these people are always male, I must say. Um, You're you're a, uh, a madman who wants to go to war when you have the chance and you don't particularly care where so long as you can have a war.
2: So with that in mind, and this is a question from what Hugh saw also on social media. He asked, what are the key elements of the fascist state? How do you go about Defining fascism—is that even possible?
3: Well, I don't. I I think that it's pointless because I think the word changes its meaning over time. What I didn't say and should have said a moment ago about Franco is that Franco um, and and his supporters managed to um, murder twenty five thousand Spaniards at the after they won the Spanish Civil War, and they probably have a death tally of something like one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand Spaniards on there list of deaths. Mussolini, of course, within Italy, didn't have anything like that tally. The tally is in the empire, and then when Italy starts going to war um, in a sort of great power fashion, I suppose. Um, Trying to define fascism, I mean, I I did look up the other day Wikipedia's definition of fascism, and it's perhaps a little bland because it says fascism was a form of far-right authoritarian ultranationalism, characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of the opposition, and a strong regimentation of society and the economy, which came to prominence in early 20th century Europe. It's not a very good definition, I think, and almost everybody, as I said before, would want to add racism, anti-Semitism, and a desire to go to war to that list. Whether all those features actually Typified the Italian fascist regime from 1922 to 1943 or 1945 um, is more a matter of debate. So, you
2: would you argue that it's not inherently racist and authoritarian? I mean, would that be your view? Well,
3: certainly authoritarian. Um, in that, um, I mean, I, I actually, in, in my most recent book, what I argue is that if only we could forget about Hitler. We might understand dictators and we also might understand current populism better if we looked at Mussolini, because it does seem to me that um, di- dictators um quite often start with an ideology. If you think about someone like Mugabe or Gaddafi in Libya or or whatever, but in time that turns out to be a bit hollow. And they then want to cling to power, they then want to um be the 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 sole rulers of their country. And um, so the ideology, in a way, gets redefined and becomes more muted and confused and etc. And that, I think, is much more like the Italian story than it is the German story, where I have no doubt that Hitler was a true believer. He really believed in, 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 in anti-Semitism. He really believed in anti-Bolshevism. Um, the, Mussolini um, can be found, Mussolini, as I've said right at the beginning, is a journalist and he writes lots of stuff. So you can pick him out being making anti-Semitic comments in his early days as a journalist, but then you can also pick him out saying pro-Semitic statements. So what are you meant to make of that? You're you're meant to find, I think, a journalist who can dash off an article on very many topics and it's not altogether necessary that he has to be totally consistent. As for racism, I mean, which country wasn't racist? Um, Britain, after all, is sometimes called a liberal democracy between the wars, but surely it wasn't. It was a liberal empire. And it might have been reasonably um, democratic in Britain, with certainly with a parliamentary regime and a capitalist economy and so on. But perhaps it was rather less democratic in India or in its numerous African states, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Actually, that leads me on quite nicely to my next qu- question, which, which is how sympathetic were democracies such as Britain and the United States to fascism, especially in its very early days, pre the rise of Adolf Hitler.
3: Yes, I mean I think the turning point in many ways is the Ethiopian War because Ethiopia was a member of the League of Nations, and however odd it was that it, it did have that role, um, it's easy for politicians, certainly in Britain, to be persuaded that they really must um, stop this. And it was a bloody invasion of of Ethiopia and that you couldn't behave like that, even though they'd behaved like that themselves um, through the 19th century. And so through the 1920s and up to the middle of the 1930s, there's often sympathy, although it's often a conditional sympathy, because you've got to understand that Anglo-Saxon societies say, tended to be pretty much as racist about Italians as normal, as were most Germans, except for Adolf Hitler. In other words, you thought, I mean, the key phrase always was, well, Italians can't fight, can they? Um, The the British had a a leading member of the British Foreign Office tended to write down in these little minutes, "The the people are a bunch of ice creamers. Um, So they're soft and their power melts away if you lick it with British um, firmness. And so you can find Churchill, of course, in 1927, Um, in in one of his anti-Marxist moments came out with a fascinating statement that had I been an Italian I would have been with you from start to finish in your struggle against the bestial passions and appetites of Leninism. A nice Gertilian phrase. His wife also rather like Mussolini's musculature and wrote a rather sweet letter back to Winston when she went to a fascist parade in I think 1927 but that could be wrong saying that she did hope those wicked Italians didn't kill Mussolini because he was such an effective leader. and So the idea that Mussolini and fascism are okay for Italy, but only okay for Italy and not necessarily for, say, liberal parliamentarism in Britain. Um, in the United States, Italian immigrants tend to be notably pro-fascist. The regime is, has, makes lots of propaganda um, statements towards those immigrants. Um, um, and, and in the 1920s, um, um, institutions like J.P. Morgan and so on um, rather helped the Italian economy to recover from the First World War with collaborative arrangements with the regime. So really the, the, the conflict is, is quite rapid in some ways in 1935. Anthony Eden, um, who was perhaps a rather gentlemanly gentleman as um, British Foreign Secretary, um, really dislikes Mussolini. He he, The word he uses about him on a number of years, this is a gangster. And so, you've, I mean, The Economist, for example, in March 1936, um, forgives uh, Hitler and the Germans for remilitarizing the Rhineland and then their editorial runs on, well, they're nothing like those horrible Italians who are murdering Ethiopians and dropping poison gas on them and generally behaving in a way that you'd expect a... Inferior people like the Italians. In a way, the most interesting part of that story is why on earth does Hitler not join the general German right-wing view that the Italians belong to a racial group that's inferior to the superior German racial group? But he, perhaps that's his artistic temperament or something and the fact that he likes looking at paintings in Florence and such places. Well,
2: what What's the story of fascism following the Second World War? I mean... They're... Would you say it flourished anywhere in the world post-1945?
3: Well, I think it was pretty well killed off because the result of this, since the Second World War, was fought to a bitter end um, and the Germans, of course, suffered absolutely massive casualties. I mean, perhaps 20 times as many as their Italian partners. And there had been various um, puppet fascist regimes um, under Nazi fascist administration of Europe in places like Croatia or Slovakia or whatever, which would lose their independence and then get it back, of course, in the 1990s. But um, except for odd cases, I mean, Perón in Argentina um, had uh, actually been Argentina's military attache in Rome when the Second World War started and was sort of starry-eyed, in fact, about Mussolini and about Italian fascism. And so perhaps there was some sense in his mind that what the Argentinians with of course, they're massive. Um, uh, Italian settlement um, over the the last 100 years or 80 years or so um, before um, was still a good model. But mostly fascism becomes a far-right movement. There is a slight exception in Italy um, where a fascist party is created almost immediately after the Second World War. Its name is the Movimento Sociale Italiano, um, where the word obviously is borrowed from The regime which governed Italy from September 1943 to April 1945, when basically the Germans had invaded, and the country was the object of warfare between the Allies and the Germans.
2: Finally, Richard, here's a question from Matthew Shepard. He asks: How has the meaning of fascism changed over time? And just to expand that a little bit, I mean, would you argue that this is a term that's bandied around too much in the 21st century?
3: Well, I think it's, I mean, it depends what you, if you accept that what you're really trying to evoke is Auschwitz, uh, racism of an extreme kind, and even perhaps warmongering, although that's a difficult matter in the contemporary world, then there's no particular reason not to use it. But what you're really evoking there is Hitler and Nazism, and it's very peculiar that um, the word fascism has somehow predominated. Um, Perhaps the reason for that is because Marxists back in the 1920s were people who, by definition, were internationalist, and so Italian Marxists um, in 1922 were already saying, well, this is an international idea. This isn't just um, an Italian idea in the way that Mussolini was saying in 1922. So the word obviously has changed In if you p- put it into some sort of precise Italian context and you turn out to be a historian like me who spends his time writing books about what really went on in fascist Italy, which is a far cry from what the fascists might have said went on. But the idea that there, there is an extreme nationalist, extreme racist um, version of running a state with a state also interfering in some senses and providing some sort of welfare. Um, I I see no reason probably why you can't use the word. It has, of course, been used very readily for Trump and his aspirations in the United States. I do think there's a big problem there because Trump is, of course, a zillionaire. Um, He's not a a poor boy from the provinces as Mussolini was. Um, And he certainly doesn't believe in much state welfare to go a long way down. He might might um, like to make it sound as though, but he he he's not willing to have his taxation bill vastly increased, so the state has money to spend on welfare, and he certainly doesn't believe in regulation. And obviously, a fascist does believe in regulation. I don't think he really wants to invade other places very much. He may want to expel immigrants, and certainly the hostility in our contemporary world to immigrants. There obviously are some parallels with Um, the anti-Semitism of the interwar period and um, perhaps the racism, the African-style racism of empires, including Italy in that period. That was Richard Bosworth. His books
0: include A Biography of Mussolini, which is published by Bloomsbury Academic. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.